Hello, I'm Alina Jenkins and welcome back to the KI Prime podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Therese Stenfors. Therese is an Associate Professor in Medical Education at Karolinska Institutet and is the Director of the Evaluation Unit. Her background is in social science and she's previously worked with academic development. Most of her research today is within the area of lifelong learning for healthcare professionals and her favourite qualitative research approach is phenomenography. With over 20 years of conducting research, she told me at the start of our interview why this was one of the reasons she was selected to be part of the KI Prime Fellowship. I think one of the reasons why I'm part of the fellowship program is probably the the breadth of my my research. I have quite a wide scope within medical education, which means I have a nice network of people. As, As you mentioned, I've probably been in research in higher education for almost 20 years, but for 15 years I've been in medical education. And uh, well, one of the one of the obvious reasons why I was in the fellowship program is because I work at Karolinska, and two of the spots among the fellows were kept especially for researchers at Karolinska. And there is not so many of us uh, researchers in Sweden in medical education, so I was one of the lucky ones to be selected. Why are there not so many medical education researchers in Sweden? Good question. It's I don't know. I suppose it depends as well on how the career paths looks at different universities, like. In many places abroad nowadays, you you need a PhD in your subject to be able to teach, but you quite often also need a master in teaching or at least the significant teaching merits. While in Sweden, traditionally, it hasn't been like this. You only need to be an expert in the subject you teach. And hence, the the area of teaching in higher education has not been so well maybe developed or explored and researched because there hasn't really been a need for courses in it and so much development work. And this has led to that there are not many grants in this area. There are not many funding opportunities for research in this field in Sweden, if you compare with, uh, say, for example, Canada or the Netherlands. This topic of funding difficulties is something which keeps coming up in my conversations for the podcast. Is this a continuous challenge and has it been an issue for you? It is a continuous challenge. The way we usually work in this field is... I mean, many of us work in more like scholarly projects with the committed teachers, with researchers that also research completely different areas and that have other funding and other roles, or maybe they are active as clinicians and their research is just a a part-time thing. You have an extensive background in medical education and a lot of your research has been based around qualitative research rather than quantitative. Can you tell me more about that? That's what I'm interested in. That's, <laughs> I suppose for me, it's really important to enjoy what I do, as for most people. And I really like the, the qualitative research process. I really enjoy it. Uh, the interviewing people, observing people, getting to know people, trying to understand it's better, exploring the roles and relationships. But it goes back, of course, to, to when I started and I did my PhD and the supervision I had during my PhD, which led me into to my special area of phenomenography. My, my supervisors were expert within this. And I did in the beginning try and 
resist and I wanted to use some other research methods. But after a while, I realized, you know, but why? You know, I work at this, these are some of the world's leading experts in this method. So why should I do something else? Why not learn from the best and, and do phenomenography? For those who may not know much about it, what is phenomenography? Uh, so phenomenography is a research approach that was actually developed in Sweden, in Gothenburg in the 70s. And the, the, the people that developed it had a background in teaching and in psychology. And, and it's a method to help explore the way we understand different phenomena in the world. And it's a method that helps us capture the range of different ways in which a, a phenomena can be understood. So it's, it's not black and white. It's not this or that. There is a whole spectra of variation which is the focus of phenomenography. And it's been used, in the beginning, it was used a lot to see how people approached a, a learning situation or approach their teaching. So one of the classic examples is from deep or surface approach to learning, whether you focus on just learning everything by heart or a deeper approach where you try to actually understand the text. And we found that there was a range here in how people approach it. So what are the benefits of using this kind of approach? Well, as most research methods, it's it's complementary to other approaches. I mean, I, I like the mixed method approach, but I think phenomenography is, it really helps to understand the complexity of the way we understand things around us in the world and, and the variation. Phenomenography is, is close to my heart since it was developed, especially for teaching and learning, and that's an area where I've done most of my research. It, it has helped my teaching a lot when I understand how how students understand what we're talking about in such different ways. Uh, I've used it in um, healthcare as well. Uh, one of my PhD students did a project where we looked into how do the healthcare staff understand the concept of quality? So what is good care? What is a good, what is high quality care? And then realizing, of course, that there is a variation in what they perceive as high quality. That is super important that we then try and work with this staff to improve the quality. So what is that quality? Once you've collated the data, how is it then used for competence development in professional training? What's the goal? Yeah, so one of the projects I did when I first started at Karolinska was I was interviewing teachers in, in how they understood their different teaching roles. What does it mean to be a good lecturer? Or what does it mean to be a good preceptor? Or what does it mean to be a mentor to a student? And I was exploring how they understood these different roles. And then I could build on that in my teaching, because at the time I was teaching faculty development. So when I met a group of, of teachers, and I understood that for some of them, all they wanted was, you know, I want to have perfect slides, because for me, being a good lecturer means that I have really good presentation skills. That's what it's all about. While others in the room, I understood then had a different understanding of um, what it means to be a good teacher. And they wanted to learn, so how can I meet the students? How can I support their professional development? I don't care so much about my presentation skills. I really want to get to know the students and their aims and ambitions and start from there. I was thinking you and I have a similar skill set in that we're both interviewing people. Part of that skill set is the preparation, understanding the subject or situation, so you can ask good questions. How important is this interview process in the research that you do? It's central. I mean, that is the core of, of it all, is the interview. Well, an advantage with the methodology is that you don't necessarily uh, only need to get your data at one point of time and you just have this one opportunity, you could always call back or add another interview or add another layer, or sometimes you might even combine it with other methods such as observations. 
But yes, it's a good interview is core. And for that, you just really need to be curious, I think, about the person you're interviewing and what they're saying. As a communications coach, one of the key things we teach and also practice is the idea of listening with the intent to understand rather than listen with the intent to reply. And I imagine that's another important part of the interviews you do. Indeed. And sometimes as questions that might come across as a bit silly or stupid, just to make sure that, did I really understand that? Is this what you meant? Is this what you said? And just be okay with that. Therese, you've been published many, many times and speaking to others in this podcast series, they've told anecdotes of others who've had difficulties in getting published. What would be your advice to help people get published? To be able to get published, I think a lot a lot is in the writing as well. So I would, I would read a lot and see what kind of studies uh, a certain journal tend to go for. And then also to start review quite early. Sign up as a reviewer for different journals because that, that's a really good way of, of learning to write. And don't be afraid to contact people for co-authorship. If, if there is an expert in a certain method you want to use, I think that's really helpful. Where do you see your research going in the future? What are you excited for? Right now, I'm working quite a lot within the healthcare setting. And I'm really excited about exploring the what's happening with all the um, online patient care and the the distant relationships between healthcare professionals and patients and how that affects the care. You mentioned online patient care. Tell me a bit more about that. Well, it could be, for example, like this, that you meet your doctor via a video chat. It could also be how patients nowadays often can report their own data into an app and that the the doctor can then read the data, say, for example, for patients with diabetes. Over time, you can, you can see you, you report your data every day in an app and the physician gets to share that data with you rather than you just come in and do your blood pressure, say, once a year. Instead, you can do it every day at home. I was speaking to Brian Hodges about the rise of AI and technology. And of course, he's very big on compassion. What's your thoughts on removing some of the human interaction? Clearly some benefits in doing that in terms of data collection, logistics, efficiency, but your whole world is around compassion and patient care. So what are your thoughts on this interaction between technology and compassion? Well, so far in the projects that I've been involved in, we've seen mainly benefits in that the the patients feel that healthcare is actually closer to them and more accessible because they can also they can chat or they can call or they can visit in person if they prefer. Whilst in the past, there's been only the option of visiting in person. So they actually, many of them feel that it's easier for them now to get in touch with their healthcare professionals. But it shouldn't naturally, the, the face-to-face meeting should still be an option. And of course, virtual and remote ways of working is something we've all been doing more of during the pandemic. Has COVID-19 had any impacts on your research? Well, it's been a challenging six months, of course, as for for everyone. In terms of my work, it has meant that some of the projects have paused, whilst others have appeared and other opportunities some new areas of research. And this field that I was just mentioning with the online communication and distant care, of course, have exploded in the last few months. So with that explosion, what will be the benefits for patients and for medical education? Well, hopefully we can take some of the good things that we've learned these six months and and keep them and then but also then bring back some of the good stuff we used to have that hasn't been possible during these six months and find a 
use the best of both worlds. And in terms of medical education and teaching, now when we've been forced to do distant learning, I think we can really improve our blended learning in the long run. I wondered what the fellowship programme has meant for you and how it's going to help your research in the future. It's a fantastic opportunity to, for the days while we're all together, just have that time to um, think and reflect and work with your own research. So it's kind of like, you know, you take a, you pause the outside world and you could just focus. It was kind of a big ego trip. You focus on your own work for a few days, which was lovely. (laughs) But mainly the biggest value was the, the network that I could kind of take with me and how we've kept in touch. I feel now I have this group of people that I could turn to with questions, ideas, advice, inspiration. Uh, and the leadership of the program, of course, was amazing. I mean, their mentorship was extremely valuable and, and still is. You mentioned being inspired by the program and some of the other fellows have told me the same thing. Has the fellowship led to any collaborative research amongst yourselves? So I knew some of the fellows from before we met and we had ongoing work together or had done in the past. It was a really good opportunity to reconnect Whilst with others, I've been in touch afterwards. I invited uh, one of them to to be the opponent for PhD defense for one of my PhD students later in the spring. But then COVID-19 happened, so that didn't quite work out. But to have this network for these collaborations and for inspiration is brilliant. And I've also recommended some of the fellows' works to to my PhD students. And I'm using some of the literature now. I'm teaching them. a PhD course, an introduction course in medical education research starting next week. And and I'm using some of the other fellows' research as in the course. Which takes us back to what we said about the challenges of medical research. And I wonder if the networking which has come out of the fellowship is one way to forge a more productive and positive future in the field. Indeed, because it opens up for for more um, international grants and, and collaborations that might be based in, in other countries where we can explore different phenomena from our different perspectives, depending on which country we're working, which is super valuable. One of the fellows has a, a PhD student in the Netherlands, and I am currently contributing to one of her papers in her thesis with my expertise in phenomenography. So that's, that's lovely. I know you had the opportunity to work alongside Glenn Regeer, who's the latest recipient of the prize. Can you tell me more about that? So uh, straight after I finished my PhD, I had the opportunity to, to go to UBC in Vancouver for a two-year postdoc at CHESS. And so there I worked with many of the senior researchers. We have um, uh, Dan Pratt, Joanna Bates, Kevin Eva and Glenn Regeer. I didn't conduct any research with Glenn Regeer, but what I learned from him and his his mentorship skills, he, he, ha- he has this curiosity about people's uh, areas of research and their kind of motivation for research. He, he mentors a lot of people and he has this openness and curiosity about what other people do and other people's expertise. So when I when I joined UBC, he hardly any of them knew about phenomenography, which was a method I had used in my in my PhD. And and Glenn was uh, he's like right. So I've heard you use this method, and I don't know about it. Can you please teach me? Uh, so we had like three or four sessions where I was just trying to teach him phenomenography. And uh, this is kind of open mindset and curiosity about wanting to learn more is it's really nice. To raise Stenfors. 
Next time, my guest will be Dr. Pim Tennyson, Scientific Director and Research Director of the School of Health Professions Education at Maastricht University in the Netherlands and his research into workplace learning in healthcare. Until then, goodbye.